right, well, bless his heart, right? No, hey, today's Family Worship Sunday, and uh, big thanks to the youth worship team for leading us this morning. That was outstanding, as usual. And uh, of course, to Eliana for that wonderful scripture. I don't think we even need to go into Mark this morning. That was probably enough for us for today. I want you guys to know that, that uh, I didn't realize till this morning that I hadn't scheduled anyone to do that reading, and so I quickly shot off an email and Eliana quickly stepped right up and did a great, uh, great job for us today. So blessed by that. Um, so anyway, kids, if you're in with us today, elementary kids, so preschool through fifth grade, you guys are dismissed out the side door with teacher somebody is about to take you out the side door. I don't know who it is, but you'll find a teacher over there if you head out that direction. And then youth, so middle school and high school, you guys are super blessed to be in here with us today. And I know you look forward to the first Sunday of every month just for that reason. Now, we've been blessed by the study through Mark, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you would probably want to have a Bible, and just raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take this one home. If you don't like the one you get, we'll get you a, your own Bible that you do like. We just want you to have a Bible, amen? One way or the other. So you guys look well-rested today and good-looking as always. And uh, as Donjay said, we hope that you'll hang out with us today and stay for uh, some food afterward. We're not going to uh, stand around out on the patio. We're actually going to go back into the fellowship hall, which is right behind us. And you can get there just through this door to your right. And, um, but hang out with us afterward. It's kind of a thankful feast kicking off, of course, uh, a wonderful month of Thanksgiving uh, here in the month of November. So uh, Mark chapter 2 this morning, and as you're turning there, let's pray and just really ask the Lord to bless uh, his word this morning. So Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful church family that you have provided, Lord, this body of Christ that you have placed us into. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you provide, Lord, and this place that you've given us that we can come together each and every week, Lord, in fellowship with one another, Lord, in communion with you, Lord, and just an opportunity to dive deeply into your word. And so, Lord, as we do that now this morning, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher today, and that you would give us uh, ears to hear what it is that he has to say uh, to each one of us, Lord, individually, uh, Lord, as individuals and and. Uh, collectively, Lord, as your body. And so we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 2, and we're sort of moving this morning into this next chapter of Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And we're picking up really with what is kind of this next picture that Mark includes for us in the early ministry of Jesus. Remember, we're up here kind of in that Galilee, northern region of Israel. And remember, when we last left off, Jesus had just kind of set out on what was likely a, a multi-day or more likely kind of a multi-week sort of a preaching and teaching tour through that entire region. In verse 39 of chapter 1, it said that he went out preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. 
And it was during that time that we said last week in our, our text last time that he met and he healed that desperate man who was full of leprosy. Remember that? And Mark included that here for us, I think, right at the end of chapter 1, kind of as this climax, if you will, showing us the great authority that Jesus and that Jesus alone has over what we said last week was our most plaguing problem, right? Not simply over leprosy, but over our sin, which of course leprosy pictures for us throughout the scriptures. Now this morning we're going to see Mark once again move in his very methodical way to his very next picture, which kind of picks up on this very same idea. Again, continuing with this idea of Jesus' great authority, and Mark's going to record another sort of a familiar event that's really designed to demonstrate both to the people there in the first century that he was ministering to, as well as to us, what Jesus' ministry was really all about. Because at this point in his ministry, as it's getting going here, he was well known as this kind of a miracle worker, and he had this radical message about this new coming kingdom. But as wonderful as all of the exorcisms were, as wonderful as all the healings had become, Jesus had come to do much more than simply relieve the afflictions of the sick or, or, or of the demonized, right? There was something that was even greater that the people would come to experience through his ministry, and that was that they could even now, by faith, enter into this new coming kingdom of God. And the people needed to start to understand what were really the spiritual lessons that were behind all of these physical miracles that he was performing. And we're going to watch as that really unfolds for us in our text today. And as well, I think we're going to be super encouraged along the way as we get there by what are, I think, some great lessons about our own faith, right? As we're entering into or as we're living here in this kingdom of God. So let's jump in, verse 1 of chapter 2, where we read that again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. So here's Jesus Right, just returned back from this teaching tour through the Galilee, back very likely at the house of Peter here in Capernaum. Right? right there, that beautiful city, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that word was out that Jesus was back. Right? It was heard that he was in the house. Or I love the way the old King James Version puts it. It says that it was noised that he was in the house. Right? Social media was buzzing with the news, right? buzzing with this noise, right? because the popularity of Jesus is really ramping up at this point. Understand, when we think about the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, it breaks up pretty evenly into kind of three one-year sections. Right? The first year was known as the year of obscurity, Right? And only John really records that for us. It was that time when Jesus was still largely anonymous. And then the second year is known as the year of popularity. That's where we are here. 
right? That's where each of the synoptic gospels kind of picks up the story. This is as the crowds are really beginning to grow and to follow him and really to become absolutely massive. And then, of course, the third and the final year is known as the year of opposition. That's, of course, of Jesus just heading there steadily toward the cross. And so here at this point, Jesus is really starting to reach the height of that popularity. You might remember the last time we were together, we saw that late night sort of session of healings, right? There in Capernaum as they brought, I guess it was two, two times ago, as they brought all of the diseased and they brought the demon possessed. That was the last time he was here at Peter's house. No doubt by this point, this news of this unheard of healing of this man with leprosy, right? This hopeless man with this terrible terminal disease, right? That news of what Jesus had done with that man had certainly spread because you remember, despite Jesus' warnings to the man not to tell anyone, what did he go out and do? He told everyone. And in the very last verse that we left off with last time, it said, however, this is speaking of the leper, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. So now we see after however much time has gone by, Jesus is now, he does enter back into the city Right, which we said he had made kind of the headquarters of his whole ministry. And now we find him inside this house. At this point, he has to avoid the streets because the streets had kind of turned into this big healing campaign. Right? Everywhere he went, people were pressing in on him, asking for healing, asking for demons to be cast out so that he was unable to really accomplish what it was he had come to accomplish which we're going to see in the, just the next couple verses. So no sooner had the word gotten out that he's there in Peter's house. What does it say? What's the first word there in verse 2? It's Mark's word. Immediately, it says, Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So Peter's house, once again, it's overwhelmed by this multitude of people as just the word of Jesus' return spreads like wildfire. Now, we don't know exactly how big Peter's house was. We have those remains of the house there in Capernaum that may help us have a sense. But, you know, some homes then were one room. Some homes then had multiple rooms. However many rooms Peter had, there was no room because people were filling up all the rooms, right? Jesus' popularity had gotten so great that just to find out where he was would immediately produce this crowd, right? Just trying to see him, just trying to make contact with him. And so this house, however big it was, becomes absolutely jammed with people. We can only imagine they were gathered outside of any window that there might have been in the house. They were gathered there around the door of the house so that they were even spilling out into the street in front of the house, right? Anyone or anywhere where anyone could hear his voice or just get a glimpse of him because he was there, right? Everyone wants to come see Jesus. 
They want to see what he's going to do next. They want to hear what he's going to say next. They just want to get their eyes on him because no one has ever spoken like this. No one has ever ministered the way that he has. I mean, we read just this verse and we can almost feel kind of the tightness of the crowd. You know, you can almost smell the thickness of the air and the humidity that must have been created with all of those people just crammed in there. Right? There's not room for one more person, not a square inch left. There's this absolute wall of people. And notice what it is that Mark tells us that Jesus did with this crowd who had gathered there to him. Look at the end of that verse again. It says what? That he preached the word to them. Because one of the primary things that the ministry of Jesus was really about is the proclaiming of the word of God. Now we know, and we've said as we started off, that you know, Mark really kind of focuses his, his account a lot upon the works of Jesus, right? The, the different miracles of Jesus, the things Jesus did, as opposed to the things that Jesus said. Mark doesn't record for us a lot of the actual words of Jesus the way that some of the other gospel writers do. And yet nonetheless, as we read through Mark's account, we never ever lose the sense of the priority that Jesus placed upon the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Right? Miracles are wonderful, and we all would probably wish that we had more of them in our lives today. But as much as we have a desire for those things, we should have a deep hunger to hear the word of God. We should have a deep craving to hear from God. And we see here the great value that Jesus himself placed upon the ministry of the word of God, the great respect that he has for the word. I mean, here's this hungry crowd, right, who has jammed themselves into this house, and they're all looking at you, they're all staring at you, they're all waiting for the next word to come out of your mouth, and what in the world do you say to that kind of a group? This kind of a group has brought their hunger for God and their desire to know God and to know what he's like. And there's this incredible spiritual thirst in this situation. And what in the world do you do with them? Well, Mark tells us that Jesus takes and he preached, or more literally, the word is that he simply spoke the word of God to them. That's what he gave them. And I think we need to ask ourselves, if that was the highest thing that Jesus could do to make use of that time and of that opportunity, right? I mean, if there was anybody who could have come up with something insightful or something interesting to capture the interest of this crowd, it would have been the Son of God. Right? It would have been God the Son. He certainly could have addressed the, the oppression and the overreach politically of the Romans at that time. He could have talked about the social injustice. He could have talked about class inequity. He could have talked about racial relations or racial reconciliation. But what he does is he takes and he delivers to the crowd the word of God, which addresses all of those issues in God's perspective. Right? And what we would only give to have a copy of that teaching, amen? To find that on eBay somewhere, right? Or to download that from someplace. Here's Jesus sharing from the Old Testament. Remember, there was no New Testament at this point. 
right? But he's sharing from the scriptures as he's expounding the law and the prophets. And no doubt he's sharing with them about God's great desire to save mankind, God's great desire to forgive men of their sins, talking to them about the great importance of their repentance and of their faith. And he's bringing them back to the word of God because understand that at this time of Jesus' ministry, right, in, in terms of Jewish history, the Jewish religious leaders of that day had completely hijacked that religion away from God. And they had taken and they had replaced just the simple proclamation, the teaching of the word, and they had replaced the clear, obvious meaning of the word of God, and they had replaced it with all of these man-made traditions and these ideas and these things and these activities that they had come up with in their own wisdom. And Jesus is going to tell us a little later that he was not impressed with this in the slightest, right? He wasn't impressed with it then, and he certainly is not impressed with it now. By the time we get to Mark 7, here's what he's going to say of these religious leaders. He's going to say that in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God you hold the tradition of men. He's going to go on to say that all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And then further, he's going to say that they're making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. So here what Jesus is doing is he's doing what had been rejected by all of those religious leaders, he's making the great focus, the singular focus of this assembly, this meeting together. He says, we're here right now and this is gonna just be about the simple teaching of the perfect and the powerful word of God. Right, making this statement before that crowd and before heaven itself that he's got this great respect and this honor for God's word and he's acknowledging and he's modeling for us what is openly recognized in heaven that the greatest need that man has is to be taught the word of God. You cannot deliver anything that's better. There is nothing greater that can be spoken to any group of any people than the word of God. And I know that I sound like a broken record. Right? Always talking about the word of God. And yet... It so needs to be emphasized today so that the standard doesn't get lowered in our own hearts in terms of our own attitude toward the word of God, the way that it's being lowered within the body of Christ all around us. Uh, alarmingly so, as the word of God is increasingly being minimized in terms of its importance as the foundation right, the, the, the foundation of our relationship with God and what's happening, I don't think anyone will disagree, it's producing a weak church full of weak Christians. And one of the things that Jesus said to these very same religious leaders, right, these were these men who didn't believe in the, the, the primacy or the sufficiency of the word of God. And Jesus said this to them in Matthew 22. He said, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Because you see, one of the problems is that when you move away from the word of God, then you know less 
of the word of God. And you are therefore much less inclined to be able to experience the power of God. Right? The Bible says clearly that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? It's on the screen, right? The, the notes are on the screen. By the word of God. In other words, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Because, and again, this, I shouldn't have to say this, but it's only in the word of God that we can accurately come to know who God is and what God's really like. You can't trust who you don't know. You can't place your faith in someone that you don't know. And we only come to know God and what he's like and what's important to him and the way that he wants us to live. We only come to know any of those things through his word. So there's nothing that compares to the revelation of God's word to us. And so here in this incredible environment, right, to these people, right, in this scene, crowded, crammed in there to see him, Jesus is speaking the word of God to these people when all of a sudden, look at verse 3, it says, then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Right, so here's Jesus teaching, and now Mark, Mark wants to bring us right into the action as he suddenly sort of, you know, pivots the camera, if you will, outside shot, and he shows us these four men who are carrying their paralyzed friend, right? They have heard that Jesus is there, and now they're going to bring their friend to be impacted by Jesus. I mean, these are the kind of friends that you want to have, Right? So now, try to put yourself in this scene, because look what happens. We could have called it, right? Verse 4, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, this is a very familiar scene, right, from children's ministry, but there's so much to it as we look a little deeper into it. I mean, first of all, these guys are just not giving up. I mean, they got up here to the house. They could quickly see they had no hope of even getting near the door, let alone in the door. They had no hope of getting Jesus' attention because of this crowd. There's no hope that half of one of them could have gotten into that room, let alone four of them carrying their paralyzed friend on some sort of a stretcher. Now, when it says bed there, please don't think Sealy Posturepedic, right? Please don't think like purple gel foam or, what, you know, whatever. Think of like a stretcher, kind of a mat. And yet they couldn't even hope to get close to Jesus carrying that. So what do they do? They come up with plan B. Now, plan B, this is some sanctified boldness, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. They are going to get that guy into that room. So what do they do? They haul him up onto the roof. Now, most of the homes in that area, in that time, and still today, they would have had a flat roof, right? The flat roof, which would have probably been used sort of as a terrace or a, a patio, just kind of a place to go out, hopefully in the cool of the evening and just enjoy. It was like a, a, another room kind of in your home. And many of the homes had a stairway going up the side of the house to it, but some didn't. Now, we don't know what Peter had. All we know is that these guys get their friend somehow up there 
on the roof, stairway or not, that's not an easy thing, right? And once they get up there, they start to tear the roof apart. When it says there that they uncovered the roof, the, the sense of the original language is more so literally that they broke up the roof of the house. The roofs of the house in that time commonly consisted of these main beams which ran the length of it, and then in between them, they stuffed it with brushwood, and then they packed it tight with this hardened clay. I mean, it was a roof, but it was also a patio, right? So this is not some kind of a little thatched, you know, thatched roof grass hut that they're just, you know, that you see in a picture. These guys, no doubt they were probably engineering majors, right? Somehow they figured out exactly where Jesus was in the room, and then they go up on the roof and they start to tear the roof apart right there above where Jesus would have been. Now, what do you think would have been happening below down in the room as they did it? I mean, there would have been debris raining down all over the place. What do we think poor Peter's wife is thinking as she's watching all of this? I mean, no doubt she had just vacuumed, right, as the company came in. Not to mention Jesus, right? What did Jesus do as all of this was being done? I think we have to assume that there came a moment when he just had to stop. Right? He just had to stop what he was teaching as this man is lowered down on this mat with these ropes right in front of him. Thankfully, somebody snapped a picture of it right there as it was happening so we can... But, but this is the kind of a desperation that these guys felt concerning their friend. They were consumed. They said, we just need to get you to Jesus and he is somehow going to take care of you. And I think that it's such a simple picture, but it's a beautiful picture, and it's a great reminder of what is one of the great lessons of this passage for us. You know, so often we think that every time we run into somebody, right, whether it's a family member or a friend or a colleague, of course, we want everybody to be saved, but we start to think somehow that we need to take them all the way to that point the first time. Right, that somehow the first time we start talking to them about the Lord, that we have to elaborate on everything right from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and that somehow by the end of it, we're going to close the deal, and they're going to pray the sinner's prayer right there with us then. But I think what this story tells us is that it is simply, our job is simply to do what? To get people to Jesus. Just get them there. Just introduce people to Jesus. Let them know about him. Let them know about his love. Let them know about his offer of salvation. Let them down into his presence, as it were, and then just leave them there with him. Now, Jesus can choose to involve us, you know, as he wants to further on beyond that, but the point is that the pressure isn't on us. If we'll just introduce them to Jesus, Jesus will take it the rest of the way. Didn't he do that in your life? Didn't he do that very same thing in your life when the time was right in your life? I don't know who puts these figures together, but they estimate that the average person won't actually accept the gospel, on average, until the seventh time that they've heard it. 
And it's a great statistic, right? But the point is that if we are just bringing them to Jesus like these men did for their friend, Jesus knows how to take it the rest of the way. And that's just what we see next, right? Now that this Bible study has been so wonderfully interrupted, right? look what Mark tells us next. Again, just look at the beginning with me of verse 5. What does it say? It says, when Jesus saw their faith. And just that alone is so wonderful to me. Think about it. What Jesus just saw was all of this commotion. What Jesus just saw was all of this interruption. But what he saw behind all of that was this faith that was represented in all those things that just happened. I have to believe that if you sat in this room as all this was going on, I have to think that you could have heard a pin drop. Right, here's this interruption, and suddenly, if they weren't already, all eyes are now fixed on Jesus and how he's going to react to this interruption. Right, how's he going to respond? Is he upset by this? What is he thinking? And that's the question that Mark now answers for us. Because what Jesus was thinking about, Mark tells us, Jesus was saying, you know what? I'm seeing somebody's faith here in operation. And what Jesus knew that really represented in the hearts of each one of those men was their absolute confidence in him and his ability to do something for this man. You know, people will sometimes ask the question, they'll kind of wonder as they consider this verse, they wonder whether the reference to their faith that Mark mentions here, is, is Jesus saying that he saw the faith of just the four men or the faith of the four men plus the man who was paralyzed. And linguistically, we can't tell for sure. And yet, I think that it must have included that paralyzed man's faith as well. Think about it. To allow yourself first to be carried in, then to be lowered down on these ropes from the ceiling, completely helpless, right? completely vulnerable, unable to help yourself in the event that one of those ropes let go and that mat you were on flipped over and what are you going to do you're going to plummet to the ground and you're going to fall on your face this was a very exposed place for this man to place himself in and yet i believe that he knew deep inside himself just as his friends knew deep inside themselves that if he could just get there to jesus that Jesus would do something for him. He had that kind of faith. And I, I just need to say this. These guys and this man had a faith in Jesus, right? This faith that drove them to go to these great lengths to get to Jesus. And they had far less revelation about what Jesus was like or how Jesus responds to people who are coming to him they had far less revelation about that than we do, right? I mean, we have, we come to him today with a very informed faith, right? Because we know that he loves sinners. We know that he loves faith. We know that he loves people to come to him. But these men, this man at this point, he doesn't know that in the same way that we know that, right? Yet he comes anyway. That takes faith. And that's the faith that Jesus noticed. That's the faith that Jesus saw. 
And I look, and to me, these are some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. And as I wrote that down, I know that I say that all the time. And yet, there are a lot of beautiful words in the Bible, right? So, so give me that. But to me, these, just these first five words of verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Because what happened is Jesus saw their faith and it did something to him. Right? It produced something within him. And so our question, of course, is how do we have a faith that Jesus will see? Right? James tells us simply, he says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? So James answers this question. He says that true faith is always going to be characterized by our works. Right? What we believe will always drive what it is that we do. It's always going to reveal itself in some outward way. And so, of course, we need to make sure that that inward, unseen faith that we have works itself out in the physical of our day-to-day -day lives. And, of course, one of the ways that we do it, just like we see here with these five guys, is we need to live a life outwardly that's consistent with what we believe inwardly. And that's all that they were doing here. This extraordinary event, that's really all they were doing. All of them really believed that Jesus could do something for them. And so they asked themselves, okay, what would be the actions of someone who really believed that Jesus could help this paralyzed man? Well, the actions of somebody who really believes that is that they would go to any lengths that they had to to get that guy there to Jesus. And so they did whatever it took. You know, the Lord loves it when we believe that he can act and that he will act and then we come to him based on that belief. And yet I think what so often happens for us is we, you know, we come to God somehow and we're thinking that we're burdening him with something or we're thinking that he's too busy to answer our, our little request. And that's the way that I'm afraid that we also commonly come to the Lord, but it's the exact opposite of what the Bible says, the way that we should approach God. Jesus himself said what? Come to me, who? All of you who labor and are heavy laden. If that's you this morning, raise your hand if you fit in that camp, right? Every hand should be up, right? He, what's going to happen? He says, I will give you rest. You know, when Jesus invites us to come, he just wants us to come to him by faith. Right? And what we see with these men is that Jesus was impressed when they did. When we just simply go to the Lord and we say, you know what, Lord? I, I, you know I believe you can do this. I believe that you want to do this. And I'm going to trust you to do this or to do something even better that you know is better for me in the long run. He just wants us to believe like it says in Hebrews 6. It says that without faith it's impossible to please him. For he, comes to, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. To believe that that is God's promise to us when we come and when we seek him. Right? To believe that he is. To believe that he's active and he's loving and he's kind and he's gracious. And he's all of these other things. And that he rewards those who faithfully seek him out. So these guys were coming with absolutely the right attitude. What I think they were coming with, they were coming with this, what a great example of a childlike faith. Right? 
It's just like Jesus said to his disciples. He said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless your faith becomes like that of a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. Now, these guys are demonstrating that kind of faith. And it's childlike in the sense that they're just believing God is going to do something great. And they're not so concerned with trying to figure out how he's going to do it. That's the kind of faith a child has. And maybe for some of us, maybe there's an issue today in your life that you need to bring to Jesus. But you need to bring it this time with that kind of childlike faith. You know, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's a specific struggle with sin that you can't seem to overcome. Maybe it's a financial struggle, maybe it's a, a, a health issue, whatever it is. By faith, you're simply going to bring it to him, you're going to lower it right down and lay it out in front of him, not knowing what he might do, but just knowing that he is going to do something. Simply trusting that if you get it there to him, and if you give it to him, that he's going to do something. That's what these guys believed. If we can just get our friend to Jesus, he's going to do something. And indeed, as we read on, we see that Jesus did do something. Right? Look again at verse 5. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, wait a minute. Jesus did something, but it wasn't at all what anybody expected him to do. Not the least of which what the paralytic or the four friends thought that Jesus was going to do. They probably even maybe thought that Jesus somehow missed the mark here, right? They're like, well, you know, hey, Jesus, we, we weren't actually coming about the sin thing. It's, there's this whole paralysis problem. That's why we actually showed up here, right? But of course, Jesus never, ever misses the mark. Right? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly why he was doing it. Even though, son, your sins are forgiven you. That doesn't seem to be like the place where he should have started. And yet, a big part of what all Jews believed, right? Because all the rabbis taught that this was true. They believed that suffering and sin were always integrally connected. They were always inextricably linked together. They believed that one was always the result of the other. They argued that if a man was suffering, he must have sinned in order for that to happen. Remember, this was the whole argument of Job's worthless friends. Remember, they suggested to him, well, Job, all this bad stuff happened to you. What sin is in your life that must have caused it? And of course, we knew from the beginning of the story that there was nothing. Right? His good buddy Eliphaz said, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? But this was the accepted understanding in that culture. In fact, the rabbis had a saying that there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. So to the Jews, a sick man or a suffering man was a man with whom God was somehow angry. Now, of course, it's true in our lives 
so much of our suffering might indeed be due to our sin or the consequences of it. If, if I'm drunk and I fall down and hurt myself, okay, that's on me, right? But it is still truer time and time again that our suffering isn't necessarily a direct result of our sin, but maybe it's the result of someone else's sin, or it is simply a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world that has been corrupted by sin. Right? Sin is what introduced sickness. Sin is what brought disease. Sin is what brought infirmity into the human condition. They were never part of God's original design. Now, so we don't know where it was or why it was that this man's suffering came from. It may have been from an accident that was caused by his own sin. It may have been through absolutely no fault of his own. But the point is that it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, especially in the mind of this man, because he thought, because he'd been taught, that his suffering must have been his fault somehow. So whether it was or whether it wasn't, that shame and that guilt was so deeply ingrained there into who he was. For right or wrong, this man knew he was a sinner because he'd been told over and over again that you are like this because God must be angry with you. And so the very first thing that Jesus says to this man, effectively what he says is, son, God is not angry with you at all. It's all right. Literally, the word son there is the word child. Because it's like Jesus is speaking to a frightened child in the dark. And he knew it. And just imagine. Imagine you're this man and you hear that. And in that moment, all of a sudden, this tremendous burden that you've been carrying. This terror of an angry God. This sense of an estrangement from God. All of that immediately went out of his heart. And made his, ultimately the cure was now all but complete. Because of course the real lesson for us here is that Jesus is showing us that the single greatest need, even in a paralyzed man's life, right? The single greatest need, whatever or however flawed or however broken we are physically, our greatest need is forgiveness from God spiritually. And so that's exactly what he extends here to this man first. He's going to get to the other part. Sorry for the spoiler, right? He's going to get to the other part. But the forgiveness of sin, that was the greatest thing that this man needed. And so Jesus pronounced it upon him immediately. Because again, what Jesus' ministry was all about was addressing our deepest and sometimes even as Christians, we can go through our Christian life and we can read the book of Acts and we can read the Gospels. And some of us in this room, I know that, that you live with infirmity and you live with terrible physical challenges. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be told, rise, take up your bed and walk out? And yet for some of us, it just hasn't happened yet. And so we can fall into this place where we start to wonder, I mean, does God really even love me? And if he did, why would he leave me in this condition? 
And yet it's at those moments that the Spirit speaks to our hearts and he helps us to remind us and to really understand the reality that God has already forgiven us of our sins. And that that is the greatest miracle. That's the greatest healing that could ever happen in any human life. Much more so than having even our infirmities healed, whatever they are. It is so wonderful to be able to sit here this morning as a Christian and simply to know that our sins are forgiven. And so this is this kind of a deeper lesson here for this man. What seemed to be his greatest problem wasn't really his greatest problem. You know, what he perhaps thought and what his friends evidently thought was his greatest problem was not his greatest problem. He had a deeper problem, and that's the problem that the Lord Jesus wanted to address. And so often, what we think we need most, in reality, it's not really what we need at all. Because we usually think first and foremost, about our physical or our emotional or our material needs. But our truest need is so much deeper than that because our truest need is always really spiritual. Isn't it true that we think like this, you know, if I, if I could just get that job, if I could just get that promotion, or if I could just move into that bigger house in that better neighborhood, if I could just get that car instead of this one that I'm driving, right? Or if I could just find the right woman or the right man, or if I could just get in with that group of people, if I could just get perfectly fit and be healthy, you know, everything would then just be great. Isn't that the way that we think? We think, you know, then I would be happy or then I'll be fulfilled, or I'll finally be content. But the truth is, it's just not true. The truth is that there's something deeper at play. And Jesus, so often in our lives, he goes way beyond our deepest wish so that he can actually address our deepest need. That's what's happening here. That's the deeper lesson of this story. The greatest need for this man was the forgiveness of his sin. Because what we all really need is relationship with God. That's what we need. And that relationship always begins with the forgiveness of sin. Everything starts with that because that's the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that our sins have separated us from God. And Jesus came first and foremost to address that need. And what we've just seen, right, is he had just made that announcement in this way to that man in this room on this day to all of these people who were crammed in there. And this would have been an absolutely mind-blowing concept to everyone there in that house. As a matter of fact, if you were keeping a list of the mind-blowing things that Jesus said and that Jesus did in the Gospels, this would surely, this event would surely be right at the top, if not the top of the list. When he said to this suffering man who'd just come down on this mat and been laid out in front of him, when he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. And this is the first time by the way, for you Bible students, this is the first time in any of the gospel accounts that Jesus says this to anyone. We're a year plus into his ministry. 
And he says this for the first time, and it was a mind blower, and Jesus meant for this to be completely mind-blowing. And not only for this one man, and not only for his four friends, but for everyone in that room, because Jesus knew that he had some very special guests in the house that night. Look at what Mark tells us next in verse 6. He says, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so this is where it really gets interesting because in Luke's account of this very same event, he gives us a very specific detail that's so super interesting, it's so super important. Here's what Luke tells us in Luke 5. He says that now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching, so that's this event right here. Luke says that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So, tucked in there in the midst of this capacity crowd were many of the Jewish religious leaders who had all come to find out what it was that this Jesus was really all about. And not just the ones from the nearby towns, because Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we know that these aren't just the scribes and Pharisees from up there in the Galilee or even a little further south in Judea, but from all the way down in Jerusalem itself. And we know that these guys showed up early because they got seats inside the house. We're going to see that they got seats that were close enough that they could actually engage with Jesus. And so undoubtedly, Jesus is intentionally confronting the doubt and the disbelief that was already stirring in these Pharisees and scribes because Jesus' ministry is all about challenging doubt and disbelief. Remember where we are in the ministry of Jesus. Understand, he's already made an initial splash in Jerusalem with the first cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. Right? That certainly shook everybody up. Right? We know that Nicodemus has already come to Jesus there in Jerusalem at night. And he said in John chapter 3, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the conversations down in Jerusalem are already starting to take place amongst the theologians and amongst the religious leaders. Now he's sending cleansed lepers down there, like we saw last week. He says, don't tell anybody what happened, but go show yourself to the priests. Where were the priests? At the temple. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem. Go show yourself to the priests and have them offer the offering that Moses had prescribed. Again, we said last week, these were offerings that had never, ever been made before because no one of leprosy had ever been cleansed before. So there's already this big stirring about this Jesus. Now they're coming, understandably, right? Now they're making the trip all the way up from Jerusalem, up to the area, up to the hill stick towns of the Galilee, the scribes and the Pharisees, all the way from Jerusalem itself, because they want to listen to him, no doubt, to find some fault with him. And in saying what Jesus just said, he had just handed it to him on a silver platter. Or so they thought, right? 
when he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, they had never heard anybody do anything like that before. They had never heard a man look at another man and say, your sins are forgiven. And, interestingly, they came up with a theological conclusion which was correct. Right? Which was that if a human being ever did do that, they would be blaspheming God. Because only God has the authority to say to any human being, your sins are forgiven, because all sin ultimately is against God. So they, there's this correct theological conclusion, but it's based on a completely failed observation, right? Because what they don't see yet is that this person who's sitting there and who is saying that is God. That's the part that they missed. Right? They were right that only God can forgive sin, but they were wrong about the identity of this person sitting in front of them, of the Messiah who was sitting there in front of them and who was trying desperately to minister to them by challenging them in this way. And here's what I think is super interesting as we think about the way that Jesus is ministering to these men, because Luke also makes one more comment Right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit, one more comment at the end of that very same verse we just quoted. He mentions all these men were there. Right, It says that there were Pharisees, teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And, this, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The power of the Lord was present to heal them. So Jesus wanted to do a work not just of healing the paralytic, but to do a deeper work of providing healing for the unbelief and the rejection which was already starting to stir in the hearts of these men. So they're sitting there, it says they're reasoning in their hearts about what Jesus just said to this man. Verse 8, but, what's the next word? Immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Ouch, busted, right? Imagine the surprise of these men here. Jesus is answering the question that they haven't even asked yet, at least not out loud. Now the Bible teaches, of course, that God knows our thoughts even before we think them. And Psalm 139 says, you understand my thoughts afar off, which, by the way, is why it's always a bad idea to argue with God, because you'll never win. <laughs> Guys, it's even try worse than trying to argue with your wife, which you will also never win. But the Holy Spirit, of course, knew all of their thoughts. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Jesus in his spirit, probably through a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, like Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians 12. Right? The literal sense of the language is that Jesus knew in his spirit. It isn't like Jesus said, gee, these guys don't look very happy. Look at the sour look on their faces. I got a hunch that this is what they're thinking. That's not how it happened at all. The Holy Spirit gave him supernatural knowledge and understanding of precisely what it was they were thinking. And now he's going to address that question that they haven't even asked. And he's going to do it with wisdom and with compassion. Look what he says here in verse 9. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, 
your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. So Jesus has he had heard this doubting question as they reasoned in their hearts, so now he answers their own question with another question. And in a sense, it's kind of a rhetorical question because of course it's easier to say that someone's sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove whether they are or not. And yet to tell someone who's paralyzed that you want them to stand up and then pick up their mat and then walk out on their own, well, that's something that's a little bit easier to fact check, right? In a sense, this was kind of a trick question because it's really just as easy to say one as it is to say the other, but it's equally impossible, at least humanly speaking, to do one as it is to do the other because only God can do both. And that, of course, is the point of the exercise. And so look what Jesus says to them next. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Without looking, what do you think is going to happen next? Say it with me, verse 12. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out of the presence of them all. So they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So Jesus had just both claimed that he was God and proved that he is God. So when he refers to himself here as the Son of Man, which he does here for the first time, and we're going to see him do it 13 more times in Mark's account, Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. It was a very clear and understood title of the Messiah, taken directly from that vision in Daniel chapter 7, where the, the coming king of glory, who was coming to judge the world, is given the title Son of Man. And Jesus very often used this title in his day, because as we said, it was an unmistakable title of the Messiah, but it was free from political or kind of nationalistic ties. So Jesus could have more commonly referred to himself as the king, right, or as the Christ, but both of those titles, in the ears of the people that he was speaking to, they probably sounded a little too much like the one who's coming to defeat the Romans, when we know that Jesus had come to do so much more and to defeat a far greater enemy. One author says this of that title, Son of Man, he says, it was perhaps Jesus' favorite designation of himself and of his ministry, a clear claim to be the Messiah in terms that could not easily be misconstrued. And Jesus just did what he did for the benefit of these religious doubters so that they might know that the Son of Man has the power and has the authority. Not just the power to do it, he has the right to do it. Right? He has the regal right of a king. He has the authority as the king to do what he just did. He is able to say to a sinner, your sins are gone. And then to prove, to prove that to you, he's also going to say to this same man who's paralyzed, he's going to say, take up your bed and go home. And he will, right? And he did. Now, 
understand this. Understand what Jesus just did to these poor guys, right? We mentioned when we started three and a half hours ago, in the Jewish mind, right, written in the Talmud and their other rabbinic writings, again, according to the rabbis, there could never be healing until there was complete forgiveness first, right? Because they taught that God Almighty would never heal somebody that was still in sin. And it's interesting, they used Psalm 103, where it talks about God who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. And their justification was that because forgives all your iniquities comes before heals all your diseases, that therefore God will never heal our diseases until he forgives our iniquities. So that was written down in the Talmud. That was the, the rabbinic understanding of the day. So Jesus says to them, all right, boys, you want to reason? Let's reason through this. If I say to this guy, get up and walk, and he gets up and walk, then that must mean when I said your sins are forgiven, it must have happened according to what you yourselves write and teach and according to what you have said yourselves that only God can forgive sin. So, right? So, right? This is what these guys now have to deal with as Jesus challenges their doubt and their disbelief. Indeed, like Luke pointed out, the power of the Lord was present to heal them, just as it had healed the man who was paralyzed. First of that deep need he had spiritually, and then also that great need he had physically. This was the real reason why Jesus came. This was what the ministry of Jesus was all about, to take care of that deeper need, the deepest need in each of our lives, and that's reconciling us back to God, right? Isaiah the prophet, 59th chapter, first verse, you've heard it before. He says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. That's the problem. Right? The problem is that we are disconnected from our maker. And not only are we disconnected from him, but our sins, Paul tells us, have actually put us in a state of enmity toward him. Right? Romans 7 says that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. So from the perspective of heaven, if you are not saved, you are in active, hostile rebellion against the creator of the universe. That's what our sinful condition indicates, that we're revolting, or revol yeah, revolting against his authority, and as a result of that rebellion, we're separated spiritually from him, and we're prevented from being in relationship with him. But most of the time, we don't realize that that's what the root of the problem is. Right? Whether we're Christians who are struggling in a state of disobedience or whether we're unbelievers who've never come to Christ, we think that the problem is all of these other kinds of things. 
we think, well, I got to get this resolved in my life. I got to get that happening and things will turn around. But then there's still sort of this nagging, frustrating, sort of an irritating infirmity that we know that we have. This kind of a paralysis that we continue to struggle with that seems to be constantly deep, deep down inside of us. And we think that it's going to go away, but it doesn't go away because it can only go away when the real issue when that deeper issue is dealt with. It's an issue of relationship and of intimacy and of this unbroken communion that the Lord desires to have with us. That's the reason that Jesus came, right? That's what the ministry of Jesus is really all about. First and foremost, right, to provide himself as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price that was required for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be reconciled back into that relationship that we were created to have with God. Now it's the first Sunday of the month and what a better text to celebrate communion with than this one, amen? So I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up now and they're gonna do it so quietly and so gingerly and so nicely as they do. It's a great text for us to celebrate communion, just an opportunity to reflect for those of us who are saved, to look back and to reflect on what Jesus did for us. For those of us who might be here who aren't saved, I have to say communion is not actually for you because it's a chance where we look back to the cross. We look back to that sacrifice. Now, it can be for you and all you need to do is to take that first step and to enter into that relationship with Jesus. To simply lay all of those issues out in front of him, lower those things down, lay them out in front of him, and simply to say, Jesus, I need you to take care of these things. I want to start a relationship with you today. I want you to become the Lord of my life today. I want to turn from all of these things that I know have put me in this place of rebellion against you, and I want to follow after you. And when you do that, he'll answer that, and he'll come into your life, and he'll start that process, but immediately you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be back in relationship with the creator of the universe the way that you were designed to be. If that's your heart this morning, all you need to do is, is to, to ask that in your heart. There are no special words. There's no special prayer that you have to recite after me. You just ask the Lord that in your heart and it'll happen. So as the team starts to play, um, communion here is open communion. If you're a believer, we would love you to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of Calvary Chapel Mountain View. If you're born again, you are qualified. And as I said before, if you've not yet taken that first step, we would love you to do that even now this morning. Um, Pastor Jeff is over here and his wife Anne is over there. And if you, if you want somebody to pray with you as you take that first step in a relationship with Jesus, they would love to pray with you. There's other people in the room that would love to pray with you. Just raise your hand if you want somebody to come to you and to pray with you. And for the rest of us, as the team plays, you know the drill. You can come up, you can get the elements, take them back to your seat, spend some time with the Lord individually, um, 
and then take the communion elements just uh, whenever you feel it's time. And when we're done, I'll come up and we will uh, we'll close and we'll dismiss and we'll have, uh, we'll have some fellowship together. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we, we thank you so much for your son. Lord, we thank you for the, the, the reason that he came, Lord. And we thank you for that offer of forgiveness and of salvation and of reconciliation, Lord. And of course, we do pray that for anyone here this morning who hasn't taken that first step, Lord, and isn't in that relationship, Lord, isn't reconciled back to you, Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would be drawing them unto you even this morning. Lord, we pray for a miracle this morning, Lord, in, in someone's heart, Lord, or in, in many hearts. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time of communion as we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, Lord, his shed blood, his broken body, and all that they have provided for us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship and uh, celebrate communion. Now.